Hello and welcome back to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Daniel Thompson, and this week we will explore Pakistan, its history with both military and civilian governments, the themes of justice and corruption, and Pakistan's international relations, concentrating in particular on India, the UK, and the US. This sounds like a lot to cover in half an hour, but as we'll see, all of these subjects are highly interlinked when looking at how to go about understanding Pakistan. To take us through these topics, I will be talking to Omar Waraich, who covered Pakistan for Time magazine and The Independent from 2007 to 2015. He is a member of Chatham House and the Royal Institute of International Affairs. I will also be talking to Kamal Alam, a research analyst at the Royal United Services Institute, one of whose areas of focus is on Pakistan defence issues. Finally, I will be talking to Owen Bennett-Jones, a freelance journalist and host of NewsHour, who has written extensively on Pakistan. I asked Owen Bernard-Jones to provide me with a very short introduction to Pakistan and the ways in which it may be portrayed and perceived. There are various ways of looking at Pakistan, and generally in the Western uh, academia and in the Western press, uh, the, the concentration is on jihad and the religious cleavages in Pakistan and the religious sources of militancy. But there are other divisions within Pakistan. I mean, surely the, you know, the jihadi versus, uh, you know, various ways of expressing it, but Modras or Barelvi or Sufi Islam or whatever, uh, that, that divide is there. But you know, equally, you can look at uh, Pakistan, and I think many Pakistanis would, uh, look at it through a different prism, maybe, of nationalism, Punjabis versus Sindhis versus Baluch versus Pashtuns, or class, you know, the, the vast underclass of many bonded laborers uh, and a feudal, what's still called a feudal leadership, uh, running a massive estates. So there are various ways of analysing Pakistani politics, but uh, you know the one because of 9/11 and because of what Pakistan is in terms of being a, a country designed for Muslims to live in, uh, the religious one is the one we all tend to think about. Umar Wari provided an overview of why the theme of justice is important in understanding Pakistan. So that was a big uh, issue in the Swat Valley where Malala is from. Uh, what we saw from 2006 onwards was uh, remnants of a group called TNSM, this is the Movement for the Establishment of Sharia, uh, who had been around in the 90s, uh, rebranded themselves as the SWAT affiliates of the Pakistani Taliban. And what they were able to exploit in terms of public opinion was a deep sense of grievance over the justice system. Um, this is because arbitrary power was exercised by the police and by politicians. And um, the local police and the courts were also notoriously inept and venal. So what this meant was you could have a property dispute where you have a legitimate claim to your father's, your dead father's property, for example. But that case could end up if someone disputed your claim in court for decades, and you would see nothing as a result. The situation could actually be worse for you if your rival claimant managed to bribe local officials 
and secure decisions that were favorable to him as a result. Um, this is, as you can imagine, a desperate situation, a source of great exasperation for many ordinary people who are fed up with police acting um, in a coercive manner. So it's almost as if their, their duties or the way they operate are more reminiscent of a colonial function that the police had in terms of controlling a population rather than offering it protection as you would in a democracy. So when the Taliban went about their rampage in SWAT, what they were able to say was, we will deliver you swift justice. It may not be, and this is what it looked like to the local population was, that it may not be elegant, it may not be decorous, it may not always be fair. It will be brutal at times, but it will be swift. And this held great appeal for them. And what we saw was that the the hold of the Pakistani state began to erode very swiftly within Swat Valley. But then there came a point when the Taliban's brutality became fully apparent to the local population. And that's when they began to turn against them. During this time, the government obviously has to wage a doubly hard battle. On one hand, the Pakistani authorities have been discredited by the fact that they failed to dispense justice in a timely and uh, democratic manner that is equitable to all its citizens. At the same time, it's having to deal with a security situation that ends up displacing many, many people from these areas while it carries out quite difficult military operations to clear the Taliban from there, hold the territory, and restore civilian rule. Ultimately, though, it seems as if SWAT is mostly a success story. There are still a lot of problems. There's still vigilante justice. There's pockets of militancy. But the state has recaptured control there. But the only way it can hold on to it is if it reforms its judicial system and offers people at the lowest levels efficient justice so that if someone has a complaint, even if it's a complaint against a local politician, that they can challenge their local elites when they act arbitrarily or in a cruel manner. That's what Pakistanis need. And I think actually in the long term that applies throughout the whole country. That if you actually begin to have that, you will develop amongst the citizenry a great uh, trust in the states, which is sorely lacking at this point. You may have heard that actually Pakistan's tax receipts are dismal. That only now part of that problem is the fact that there aren't that many Pakistanis who make a great deal uh, of money, but it's also because Many people, not least the elite, evade tax. And the complaint that they, the, the excuse that they often advance is that, well, the state doesn't provide us basic services. And so you actually have a great deal of resentment even amongst the middle classes who say, well, we don't use public transport because it's so bad. We provide our own transport. We don't use public health and education facilities because they're not good enough. So we go to private hospitals and we put our children into private schools, even if they're of a low quality. 
Um, we provide our own security where possible, whether that's in the form of a private guard or whether it's in the form of hiring someone with a uniform and a gun. Electricity has begun to fail, so where people can afford it, what they do is uh, they install generators to generate their own electricity. And so you have this very privatized middle class that is in a way cut off from the states. Um, this is a great problem because it means that you have your middle classes and your elites are don't have trust in the state, aren't willing to invest in the states. And at the same time, they, that also means that they register an indifference towards uh, the sections of the population uh, who are the poor and the needy and who need the state the most. This is the kind of contradiction that the Pakistani state is dealing with. Um, there's often a great deal of impatience registered against civilian governments when they come into power. And a lot of that is legitimate. But at the same time, we are looking at long-standing issues that are mm -hmm. chronic. Mm -hmm. And because you've got a rise in population, and you've got a particularly creaky infrastructure, and you have a state that hasn't had necessary periods of investment, its capacity has weakened even further. What Omar had to say ties in very well with Kamal Alam's comments on the theme of justice and corruption in Pakistan and how they relate to religious extremism. Yeah, so you see, I think corruption is probably the bane of Pakistani politics and its uh, lack of development. Uh, one could, if you look at the recent phenomena, there's uh, the new, the last... Well, it's not that recent, but they've only come into power recently in the northwest frontier of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. The Pakistani Tariq itself, which is a, as translated as the Pakistan Movement of Justice, run by the former cricketer Imran Khan. Hmm. But they've been running on the platform of anti-corruption. Now, the most interesting thing is that for the first time in Pakistan's history, the youth of Pakistan voted actively in politics. You know, young people in Pakistan from the age of 18 to 35 have never been interested in politics unless they come from feudal families and they're forced into politics by their parents or grandparents. But a majority of the youth of Pakistan voted for Imran Khan and his party. Uh, and he won in a sweeping election in, on, on, on the frontier. And there's been a massive anti-corruption drive over there. The KP police has reformed, the bureaucracy has reformed. There is a very transparent system where you can call up uh, they're leaders of the PTI if, if you think a policeman has been corrupt or a local politician has been corrupt. And similarly, they've had similar successes in the limited areas they won in Pakistan, in Punjab. So that's one aspect of the corruption where new political parties are tackling corruption. Now, the old political parties, they think corruption is part and parcel of the Pakistani society. Everyone does it, it's their right. You know, And I think... It's, it's not an easy fight to fight, because if everyone is doing it once, says, well, why should I stop? How they can fight against it is the, is the main question. And I've been saying this to people that the Taliban don't really exist because of re religious extremism. Sure, religious extremism is there. No one denies it. It's, it's, it's the manipulator. But the main problem is economic injustice. This is the same problem in the Arab world. The Arab Spring didn't start because Arabs want democracy. Far from it. And we're seeing it all over the Arab world that a democracy just isn't suited for the Arab world. It leads to Islamic extremists coming to power. The main problem, whether it's in Tunisia, where the fruit seller burns himself, 
or whether it's in Islam, not Islamabad because Islamabad doesn't represent Pakistan, but whether it's you know Karachi or Lahore, it's poverty and it's corruption. So when the ordinary citizen sees everyone above him is literally living in luxury in, in government, when you have your prime minister and president in the richness of global elites, whilst your country is starving, that's where the injustice factor kicks in. That's where the religious parties are extremely influential in going into villages, going into the slums of the cities and like, right, we will give you jobs, we will provide you with education in the madrasas. And actually a lot of these madrasas are proper schools. They have mathematics, they have science, they have geography. Sure, they have religious training as well. So the, And also they have services. They run the best hospitals. Uh, and when, again, when the West puts pressure on Pakistan and says, arrest your mullahs, I'll give you an example of Hafiz Saeed, the jamaat e Hafiz Saeed, who the Indians said is responsible for Mumbai 2008, runs one of the biggest charitable services in the country. He provides free food, he provides free healthcare and education. So if the Pakistani state arrests him, all of a sudden, overnight, you will have perhaps half the population of Punjab turning against the Pakistan state because they're arresting a benefactor of the people. So that's where you look at you know, justice and equality. If the government and the state lack in it, for example, in Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa province, the Pakistan army is building all the schools and hospitals. The civilian government uh, from the federal side is inactive. So even with the new party of Imran Khan, they're trying to, but it's hard because the bureaucracy still remains from Islamabad. So you see, the problem is unless the civilian bureaucracy, the civil service and the political party give something to the state of Pakistan, the things will not change. Because at the moment, the only people providing for the people are the military. They have the best hospitals, the schools, they, they do everything. Or you have the Islamic parties. And the Taliban question is different because Taliban is seen as terrorists within Pakistan. Their style of justice, although it was quick when they took over SWAT, I think very quickly people in SWAT realized that Taliban is not the right kind of Islam. Uh, one, however, one, one cannot deny there is still considerable support in some parts of Pakistan for militant terrorist groups. There are linkages to the Afghan border, there are linkages to Kashmir, but the, there, is, there is legitimate terrorist groups that have some support from society. Again, I think that's linked to corruption and the lack of justice. When you don't have justice, the common man will go to whoever gives them justice. And if that man with justice happens to have a big beard and a Kalashnikov in his hand, then he, he wins the war. This is exactly why the Afghan Taliban is winning in Afghanistan, because the Afghan government does not provide. Uh, this is also why groups in Libya and Tunisia came to power quickly, because there was no one to replace Gaddafi with or or Ben Ali with, and that's why Tunisia, despite being seen as a model of the Arab Spring, is exporting a record number of Arab jihadis to Syria, you know. So I think it's not just a special phenomenon to Pakistan, it's a phenomenon across the region, and, the, and, and uh, whereby corruption has a direct link with organized crime, and organized crime has a direct link with Islamic extremists, which then turn out to be terrorists. And in Pakistan, it's similar. At the moment, the Pakistani Prime Minister is severely hamstrung. He's been outed in the international press with his corruption. Yet he's sitting tight, you know. 
because he knows that most of the opposition are equally corrupt, so who's going to throw charges at him? The army stepped up their game and dismissed officers. Uh, so they're saying, right, we've done our bit, now it's over to you. That again is putting pressure on the army, because again, you'll see in many newspaper editorials, oh, it's about time the army removes the prime minister. But the army's not going to do it, so it's very clear. The army's clear they're not in the business of coups anymore. So it's it's a cash to try a situation. The West is, as I said, Britain gives so much aid to Pakistan. I can tell you most of it's wasted. Most of it goes into pockets of corrupt politicians and bureaucrats, or it makes its way back to Mayfair and Park Lane because most of the politicians end up buying property in the most expensive postcodes of London. And this is a fact. Uh, this is uh, area, and so, and unless that is tackled or the aid element is cut off. Uh, then we will continue to see this problem. Owen Bennett-Jones develops these links between the topics of aid and corruption in Pakistan to look at the three links of diplomacy, aid and the military and Britain's relationship with Pakistan in relation to all three. Well, so the military relationship is yeah, there, but obviously it's, 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 it's a small change compared to the American-Pakistani relationship. Uh, the Pakistan is tremendously proud of the fact that uh, they've got this young officer at the moment training people in Sandhurst in uh, counterinsurgency techniques, which undoubtedly they have acquired expertise in in Pakistan because of their campaigns in Waziristan and so on in tribal areas over the last you know five six years. So they are immensely pleased that Britain takes him seriously enough to have this young officer of Mesem. He's a very impressive young guy, and he's you know training in Sandhurst. So it's a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a striking thing. But I mean, at the end of the day, the Americans are spending you know since nine eleven probably $30 billion on American on American military aid to Pakistan is an absolutely vast sum. It's actually slightly more probably than Israel gets. So it, it, it has been a, a huge amount of money going into Pakistan military. The Americans are, are major players there. The British are just uh, really spectators, effectively, on the side. They do another thing on improvised IED training, stuff like this, but it's a handful of men and, uh, and you know, nothing of any significance. So, there, there, you know, in terms of the military, there's a lot of decorous stuff that goes on, but nothing really substantial. The Divid thing in, in Punjab, where they are spending quite serious money on uh, education, you know, is, is, is a thing. And, and the strategy is, A, they've got all this money because the government has committed itself to these quite big foreign aid budget lines, and uh, they decided the Punjab was a priority, so they focused the effort compared to how they used to, they spread it much more globally, uh, and Punjab education came out as a very high priority, and I quite understand why, really. So uh, that is uh, you know, a, a, significant, a significant amount of money to, to, to an interesting project, whether it affects Pakistan's national development, maybe at the margin, just about. I mean, again, the sums of money, even though they're quite big for Britain, they're actually peanuts for, compared to the American funding. Uh, and then you've got the FCO, which... Yeah, you know, for what it's worth, my view is it's got a uh, an overinflated uh, view of its um, influence in Pakistan. Uh, they, they they cling on to the idea that they are still the you know, former colonial power that's got all these links and connections and is able to influence policy. Uh, you know, I don't really think that's the case. Uh, Pakistani politicians sort of humour the British diplomats probably more than uh, listen to them. And that just about sums up our podcast for this week. If you'd like to hear more on the subject, I'd recommend listening to the full interviews in the description below. If you'd like to share your own thoughts on this or any other topic, the International Relations Society is always accepting submissions to the blog at oxirsoc.com. 
If you'd like to hear more on the subject of international relations, you can also sign up to the Daily News Bulletin on our website. Thank you so much to all our guests, and to our sponsors Morgan Stanley, and to podcastthemes.com for the intro and outro music. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Until next time.